Amen. Standing overwhelmed by the mercy of God. What a tremendous thought that is to consider. And I hope we already have a sense of that, that we are overwhelmed by how good God has been to us, how His mercy has been displayed not a single time, but over and over again. Uh, every day His mercies are new, and we are certainly grateful for that. Well, I'm turning this evening to Matthew chapter number 5 as we continue our study here on Wednesday evenings of the book of Matthew. And our subject this evening is, or a title if you're taking notes, is The Exceeding Sinfulness of Sin. The Exceeding Sinfulness of Sin. And we'll be looking primarily at verses 27 through 30. Of course, this is also part of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we have already been looking at a number of the Beatitudes. Last week we dealt with uh, the Lord's teaching on murder and anger. And tonight we'll be dealing with the subject of teachings on temptation. Uh, teachings on temptation. Verse 27 says, You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off. And cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Um, what has been similar to many of the statements we have looked at is Jesus begins this section by using that familiar expression, you have heard that it was said by them of old time. In other words, what had become the tradition, what had become the thought as to what the law actually was, and he declares it, you've heard by those of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But then Jesus, in his common fashion, says, but I say unto you. Uh, he is not saying that that original law of thou shalt not commit adultery has now been annulled or it's been nullified or it's no longer in effect. But he is expanding upon it and saying it is much more than just the external act of adultery. He actually begins to now talk about what our eyes look upon and how they look upon another individual. Uh, so as we think about this, and really there's two titles to this tonight. There's the idea of the Lord's teachings on temptation, but then I think it ties directly with that thought, the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Uh, one of the things that we often are uh, very unaware, I believe personally, even for myself, I think we could agree that we don't fully understand just how exceedingly sinful we are. Uh, we, we are capable of things that we, are, we don't think we're capable of. Uh, we are capable of committing sin that we think that would never be a part of my life, I, or I don't have a struggle with that. Sin has a, a way of infiltrating every aspect of our being. It has a way of infiltrating uh, into things where we're not even fully aware that that's what's actually happening. But in this case, remember, the Lord did not come to do away with the law. He came to fulfill it. And his primary role was to do away with what had become just a tradition. Uh, the, the Pharisees had turned the law of God into something more of a tradition. And some things they added to, some things they took away, all with the intent of kind of forming a law for themselves. 
They believed that they could attain righteousness uh, by their good behavior. But what we understand here is that God, and, and through the Lord himself, he's not setting aside the commands of God. If anything, he's, he's making the law for us to see just how wide the breadth of it is. How deep that it is. That this is not something that is narrowed down to just the simple external act of something, but rather it goes something into far, far deeper than that. Tradition confines the prohibition to an actual act, whereas the Lord is dealing more with the unclean desires of the heart being a part of this. Certainly the, the actual act itself is sinful, but what about the unclean desires of the heart? Here we see that the divine law of God truly is being uh, put into the, not just the keeping of the actual law, but the desire. Uh, the part about sin we don't think about is the sinful desire. Uh, we might be able to say in some way, shape, or form, I'm not guilty of the outward external act that Jesus is talking about in this case. I'm not guilty of adultery in its, in its purest form in an outward external act. But Jesus is stretching this out. He's stretching his authority by speaking and saying, this is more than just the realm of something that is overt, something that is an outward act. What about the inward lust of the heart? And therein lies really the very crux of what Jesus is talking about here. What about our desires? What about the inward lust that we have? Now, when the Lord uses terminology like, but I say unto you, remember, he's speaking with sovereign authority. He's not giving a helpful suggestion. Uh, there are so many today that are kind of treating the word of God and even the words of Jesus as just these kind of helpful suggestions. When he said, I say unto you, he's doing that in sovereign authority and sovereign power and saying, what I'm saying to you, no matter what's been said to this point, is actually right. God's word is the authority. The Pharisees, although they were the recognized religious leaders of the day, they were not the authority, although many people had flocked to them. As a matter of fact, if you study tradition and you study a little bit of history about those times, some of the Pharisees have become almost idolized because of their apparent outward righteousness. And remember, we can clean up, and Jesus deals with this later, we can clean up the outside of the cup, and yet the inside of the cup is filthy. You can whitewash a sepulcher, you can whitewash a gravestone, uh, but inside is still death. Jesus is not saying actual adultery is okay. He's just saying not only is actual adultery not okay, but even the inward desire of lust is not okay. That's where we get this idea of not only the temptation, but also just how exceedingly sinful sin really is. But only God had the authority to make such a statement. He is saying, you've heard this, but I'm telling you, here is what, here's what the real fact of the matter is. So Jesus here in these verses explains what we know as thou shalt not commit adultery. He explains the seventh commandment. Uh, even the Pharisees would agree he's talking about the seventh commandment. The Pharisees probably had explained this commandment as the religious leaders, just as they had explained the sixth commandment and saying this just extends to the external act. 
They had very little regard for the evil thought life or the corrupt imagination and would simply say, that's of little consequence. Because remember, they thought the outward conformity actually led to inward righteousness. They believed if I conform to the outward, I am actually acceptable to God. Now, as we think about what Jesus is doing here, Jesus is assuring them that the commandment not only includes the external act of adultery, but it also includes the secret sins of the heart. And also, he involves the eye. It's interesting, he uses two of the members of our body. He uses the eye and he uses the hand in just a moment. And it's not by coincidence that he uses the right eye and the right hand. It's intentional that he uses the word right. And we'll see that and see the, the real significance of this in a moment. But Jesus declares that even those who indulge a sinful desire to the point where they look upon a woman to increase their lust have already, in the sight of God, violated the commandment and by God's standard are already guilty of committing adultery just by inflaming the lust of their own heart. Now we know, and again, we don't do this in order to simply say, well, let's point out some people in Bible times who were guilty of this, but we certainly do know that one such person who is, was found, would have found guilty of this, was David himself. Uh, David found himself indulging the evil desires and the lust of his own heart. We'll look at a couple of passages. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. 2 Samuel, and there's a, a direct reference here to indulging the lust, which lead, led to the actual act. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. says there in verse 1 of chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, and it came to pass after the year was expired at the time when kings go forth to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the, the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David tarried still at Jerusalem. And it came to pass in the eventide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her, and she came in unto him, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. We see the eye, the lust of the eye, led to the next step, right? So we see that very clearly. In Psalm 51, we see David and his repentance of this. The entire chapter is worthy of our attention, but we will not read it all for time's sake tonight. But Psalm 51 is a psalm of David uh, when Nathan, the prophet, came unto him and calls David out on this sin. Psalms 51, verse number 10, David asks the Lord, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Now, if you read 
Previous to that, David is using terminology like, have mercy upon me according to thy loving kindness. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity. I acknowledge my transgressions, he says in verse 3, and my sin is ever before thee. Against thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. So David in Psalm 51 is acknowledging what he had actually done with regard to this adulterous or uh, inflaming the lust of his own flesh. So we have a lot of people today who want to, they want to lessen the law of God. They want to make the law of God more palatable. They want to make it more relatable. They want to change it so that, yes, it's still the law of God, but it's not so encompassing. It's not so broad in its breadth. But really... The law of God is not only strict, but it's very broad in its commandments. Now, Jesus himself is putting a very, uh, very pointed finger upon the, the lust of the eyes. And that the thoughts and the feelings that the lust of the eyes can create. When Jesus gives this back in Matthew 5, he's not giving this as suggestions. He's given this as his word. He's given this as the law. What Jesus is dealing with with the hearers here is he's dealing with the unclean heart. If, if we never allowed sin, all right, now this is, we're, giving, we're dealing in hypotheticals here because we're, we're not sinless, we're not perfect. But if we never allowed sin in the mind, it would never be manifest in the body. If, if, I would, if, it, if it wasn't allowed to take root in my mind, it wouldn't be manifested. But the reality is, is these looks, these desires, these strong passions, Jesus is saying this is the very essence of what leads to that outward act of adultery. None of us can claim a lifelong freedom from this. In other words, we can't say, I don't have this problem. We can't say that our eyes are always looking upon pure things. We can't say in our humanity that I've never been guilty of this. As a matter of fact, in a sense, Jesus is so broadening out this law that he's pretty much including everybody in this net. I mean, he's ensnaring everyone to show us if this is based upon our righteousness, you and I don't have any hope. It can't be just the simple act of the act of itself. He's saying it's, I want you to see and understand your heart. There's something much more happening here than just a commandment against an outward act. Now he uses that illustration when he says in verse 26, he says that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her, all, with her already in his heart. He's not saying he's committed something like adultery. It has similar characteristics. He says, no, if, if you've looked upon her with lust, you have committed adultery with her. You're just as guilty as if you committed the external act. Again, some would say this seems, this seems so difficult to live. And this seems as if Jesus is asking for something that's impossible. And in many ways... He's, he is dealing and showing us just how exceedingly sinful sin is. How far this goes. I suppose you could put out a list of ten things don't ever to do outwardly. And you might, you might 
be able to accomplish some of them. But what would you do with the inward thoughts? What would you do with the sinful desires? See, the Pharisees wanted to limit everything to just how it looked outwardly. Jesus says, I'm dealing with something much more than just outward. Now, he makes reference to the right eye in verse 29. He said, if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. Now, the, the Hebrews, just like many others in that time, were used to representing the affections of the mind by using parts of the body as a representation of the affections or the heart, the, the, the emotions. And so we actually see Paul doing something similar to this in Romans 6.13 and Romans 7.23. If you want to turn there first, then we'll come back. Romans 6.13... And then Romans 7.23. Paul, of course, many times in the book of Romans, uses the body and it's and condemning yielding your body over to sin. So this idea of using parts of the body to represent the affections of the mind. In Romans 6.13, here's what Paul wrote. He said, Neither... Yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. In verse 12, he says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. So this connection that even Jesus is making with the hearers about the body comparing it to the affections of the mind, this was a common thing. He's not introducing something that would have been brand new. They would have understood this. Romans 7.23, Paul again in a similar vein says, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. And of course, Paul makes the statement we're all familiar with, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Paul was very much aware. He was very much aware of the dangers of his own right eye, without any question. He was very much aware of the affection of the mind. Sometimes we see in Scripture it uses the mind and describes it as our affections, our feelings, our understandings. An evil eye, Jesus himself, sometimes speaks of envy. You don't have to turn there, but in Matthew 20, verse 15, here's what he says about envy and the eye. He says, Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil? Because I am good. Sometimes the eye refers to an evil passion or something, a sin in general. Mark 7, verses 21 through 23, Jesus makes again a reference to the heart and the eyes. Mark 7, verses 21 through 23, and here's what he says. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. Now notice in that list of 
exceeding sins, there's an evil eye that's connected with the thoughts that come out of the heart. The evil eye is not just roaming because it's evil in and of itself. The eye is roving and the eye is wandering and is lusting after because it's proceeding from the very thoughts of the heart. Jesus is saying that the problem that defiles you is not what's on the outside. What defiles you is what's inside of you. Oftentimes, we, the Pharisees had this backwards. They would say the defilement is if, if we touch this, it's just unclean. And he's saying that the problem comes from within. Now look again. Look at that list. Out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. He said that all comes from the heart of man. It comes from within. So even if I could outwardly conform to the law of God, not doing something outwardly, what am I going to do with the evil of my own heart? I still have that same problem. I'm still left with the reality that my eye is evil based upon the thoughts and the motives of my own heart. This expression, really this evil eye, has the idea or the the sense of it of being a strong adulterous passion, an unlawful desire or something that is inclining me to do something wicked. This evil eye has got a much deeper meaning than just kind of an offhanded, a bad eye. It, It runs deep because it's connected to the very depravity of man's heart. So the right eye and the right hand are being mentioned because they are of most use to us. When we see the right hand of God, we see the power and the strength that Jesus himself is at the right hand of God. It's, it's given there to illustrate to us just how powerful and strong that passion may be. You know, you often hear the right hand of fellowship or the right hand of strength. That right hand, right eye is being used to, to indicate this is a very strong passion that is not just something light and fleeting, This is a strong desire. So this this evil eye is to be done away with, he says. Again, back in our text in Matthew 5, and again, in the literal sense, he says that you should, if the right eye offends thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. Now the word or the phrase, if it offend thee, uh, that comes from uh, the verb uh, offend, which just simply means a stumbling block. Stumbling block was a stone simply placed in the way over which someone might fall. But it also has the sense of being a net or something that is a snare. In other words, if your eye causes you to stumble, if your eye causes you to be ensnared, it is something that we are to take very close attention to. To offend means to bring displeasure to. In other words, my sin, my ensnarement of my eye should bring displeasure to me. So, in other words, my own sin, my own right eye, what my right eye is leading me to do, ought to make me angry. (laughs) It really should make me angry that my eye is doing what it's doing, that it's, it's leading me to think these wicked thoughts. 
The eye falls into sin when it looks upon a woman to lust after her. That's what Jesus' point is. The moment that eye looks upon a woman to lust after her, it is guilty, and that person is guilty of adultery. He's already committed that adultery in his heart. Now, this always spurs controversy when we see this because he uses the terminology, pluck it out. Other translations might use phrases like remove it. But it, it, it's, it, I don't believe Christ intended to literally pluck the eye out. Although, um, what he's intending for us to see is that even the most dear object in our life, the thing which we see and hold the most reverence for, if it causes us to sin, we should abandon it. We should, that we, we need to deny ourselves, that it's more important to deny yourself than to give in and allow that sin to become a stumbling block. Now, there were Pharisees that took it literally. They began to take it literally and said, listen, you, you, if your eye causes you to, if it causes you to stumble, then you should pluck your own eye out. The problem is, even if you pluck the physical eye out, you've still got the wickedness of the heart. You still, it's still there. So even if I could remove the eyes from my, not to be morbid here, if I could remove the eyes from my socket, it's not going to take away my sin nature. It's still capable of, capable of me of being guilty of lust, even if I can't see it. But Jesus wants, to see the, wants us to see the intention here that several times he's repeating this kind of a commandment that if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. He uses a similar, this similar phrase over in Matthew 18, verse 9, in a very similar light. He says, And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell. Mark 9, verses 43 through 47. Again, he uses it again. So Jesus is putting a great emphasis on this. In Mark 9, he introduces the hand, and if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. So Jesus uses this example of removing that very thing that's causing you to stumble. He uses the term, it is, or phrase, it's profitable for thee. Something that's profit means we get a gain from it. It brings a gain. Simply, Jesus is saying, this is something, this is, this is better for you. It's better to deny yourself the gratification of a single evil passion, however much it costs you, than to go down to hell forever. In other words, there's no evil passion that should so enthrall you that you'd be willing to, give it, to, 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 to lose your entire soul for. It's better to deny yourself that lust to deny yourself that gratification than for the whole body to be cast into hell. 
you know, one of the scary and I think thoughts that we, ne- we need to really think about is even the very body that is, is upon death is cast into hell. That sinner is still going to be left with every evil desire, every wicked and every troublesome passion that they had without any possibility of satisfying it. Now, that's, that's, a, that's a deep thought. It's not as if the sinner goes to hell and suddenly doesn't have those wicked desires anymore. No, they're going to have the wicked desires for all of eternity and they're never going to have a way to gratify it. There's no way to satisfy it. And Jesus' point is it's much better for you to, to deal with it now, to deal with that evil, that evil passion now than to even think about losing your entire soul for eternity where there, in fact, you're not going to be able to ever satisfy it. Anything. I think by way of an application, anything, however harmless it might be, which leads me to do, to think, or feel wrongly, I should consider getting rid of it. Now, some people would say, but this thing isn't bad. But if it causes me to stumble, is it really worth it? Now, I know we can get into a lot of back and forth about what that thing might be. But if it causes me, and let's use the context, if it causes me to fall into the reality to look upon a woman with lust, shouldn't I get rid of that? I mean, shouldn't I run as far away from that as I possibly can, whatever that thing might be? Again, if we know just simply removing the eyes is not going to take away the lust. But notice again, he he ties it, the eye, in with the hand. If thy right hand offend thee, cut it off, cast it from thee. In Mark 9, we saw he talked about the foot. So you see there's this pattern of what he's dealing with with the body, and he's talking about it would be much better to, to give up a body part than it would be to lose your entire soul for all of eternity. If abstaining from something causes if abstaining from something causes me to remove that evil or that wicked thought, I'm better to get rid of that thing. Take it away. Rather than to be cast into hell. When we talk about exceeding sinful, I think one of the parts we don't understand is just how lustful and evil our eyes can be. And again, it's not the actual eye itself that's causing the evil. It's the heart. You know, and, that's, and that's, it's kind of what's happened in a, lot of our, in a lot of our church ideas is that we'll just remove. And we take, we take things like even David in the Psalms says, I will, I will take away all paraphrasing, take, uh, remove any wicked thing before my eyes. Take away the wicked things. Folks, the reality is, is even with all the wicked things removed, our heart can still conjure up wicked thoughts. We could put, your, we could put ourselves in a room with nothing in it but four painted walls or four plain walls and be seated there, and our mind is still capable of sin without any stimulants. It doesn't, it doesn't need me to see something. I could put you in that same room, turn all the lights off to where you couldn't even see your hand in front of your face, and you could still have lustful thoughts. Matter of fact, you probably would have lustful thoughts. 
That's how deep sin runs. And again, what Jesus again is getting to, remember, he's getting to the point where he's, he's speaking to those who were, who were sh- should show characteristics of the citizens being citizens of heaven. But the right hand is selected for the same reason as the right eye. It's one of the most important members of the human body. And the very idea here is, is that the dearest earthly objects should be sacrificed rather than committing sin. We should deny ourselves of lustful things. We should learn how to self-govern. That's a concept. Self-govern ourselves. My self-government might be a bit different than your self-government. That's an important point. Self-government might be a bit different, but it should be maintained rather than thinking, oh, well, this is nothing minor. There's an occasional passing impure desire, impure thought, an unholy thought. That's really not doing any damage. No, it's actually just generating, it's a result of what's in the heart. Now we may think about, well, but if, if it's something causing this, well, Jesus' own words says the hand shouldn't be spared if that's encouraging us from doing evil. If we prove that something is damaging or causing a stumbling block in our life, we're much better off to do away with that thing than allow it to ruin our entire being. Now, maybe we don't think about this, but there are people who will cling so tightly to that pet beloved sin. And it might not be adultery here is what Jesus is speaking about, but it's that beloved sin that we just don't want to let go of. It's that sin we kind of justify and we say, you know, it's not really as bad as it seems or this, this is not really comparable to that. Folks, those are stumbling blocks. Those are things that become very, very dangerous in our life if we don't cut them off. What Jesus' intent here is that holiness should be our first object. Being like Him should be our first desire. Spurgeon put it this way, I love this. He said, right eyes and right hands are no longer right if they lead us to wrong. I think I mean, that sums it up perfectly. Right eyes and right hands are no longer right if they lead us to wrong. If our hands and our eyes cause us to sin and we offend God by them, we need to self-govern. Those need to be removed. Again, literally take the hand and the eye off. No, that's not what he meant. He means cut off that very thing that's become the object of your desire. Jesus is not calling for some kind of mutilation. Now, there are religions around the world that, that take mutilation as part of acceptance with God. They mutilate themselves in order thinking, okay, God's now going to be accepted with me because I took the step of plucking out my own eyes or I cut off my own hands. But the real meaning here that Jesus has, and I think this is kind of key to the whole study tonight, is that Jesus, is, is, his desire is that we would love him more than our eyes and love him more than our hands. And most importantly, we would love him more than our sin. 
I mean, sin, at least for a moment, we love it. It's hard to admit that. It may only last for a moment, but it's the whole concept of it's pleasurable for a season. I mean, it's, we can play the holier-than-thou card and say, I don't love any, any of my sin. <laughs> we love it even if it's just for a moment. When we're justifying it or we're talking about that this is, this is really not so bad, the point is, is Jesus is really teaching that in order to follow me, you really should love me more than your eyes and your hands and be willing to give up all to follow me. There has been plenty of people over history who it was a sin that they refused to get rid of. And again, I don't know tonight what that is for you. I don't know what that might be. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what the Holy Spirit does with this in your life tonight. I just know what He's doing in mine. And I know what I'm being reminded of in myself. But I would simply say, look, I think we take it seriously. And I think we look and say, when Jesus now starts dealing with not only temptation, but He deals with all of these other things, remember, He's not going to change the tone. He's still talking about these inward desires. Even when we deal with topics like divorce and oaths and forgiveness and loving one's enemies, again, you can't separate these and say, oh, now He's talked about just the external. No, all of these still go back to the thoughts and the motives and the intents of the heart. Because even the subject we deal with next week, he's going to deal with the Pharisees' idea of outward, but also he's not going to ignore the inward reality of what these teachings are. So I trust tonight that we make, we make this our great desire is to love him more than we love our sin. Temptation's going to come. Temptation is, is very much a reality. And what, if there's something that is in our life that's causing that temptation or may cause us to offend, we need to cut it off. We need to remove it. Again, don't justify it by saying, what's well, something good? If it's causing you to do wrong, it can't be good. Again, that's a tough, it's tougher than it seems. Because the goodness of a thing sometimes dictates to us whether or not we get rid of it because we don't realize the consequences of what's actually happening. <clears throat> so I hope this will challenge us tonight. Well, let's conclude with a closing hymn on 119, page 119. There is a higher throne, page 119. We'll sing this hymn together, then we'll stand, we'll be dismissed in prayer. Hymn number 119.